G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and today I am talking to Dr. Alan Pierce. So if you'd like to know more about concussion in sport from one of Australia's leading researchers on the topic, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset. And I've come to discover just how important it is. I've worked with literally thousands of people. And more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and this is the episode Prelude, which is a bit of a conversational, more informal look into the episode and interview with Dr. Alan Pierce. So this interview was something that was really exciting for me to do. Alan is actually my cousin, and I have heard about him talk about the brain and concussion for years. And in actual fact, one of my first memories of uh, his talking about concussion and the brain was when they grabbed this big magnet thing and they put it above people's heads, participants' heads, and they were actually able to switch off parts of the brain, which then prevented a person from being able to do a menial task using their hands. It was crazy. I remember this just being mind-blowing when he told me about this. And the stuff that he has then gone on to be able to do in concussion research is actually quite amazing. And I think that this guy is one of Australia's leading researchers on concussion. He is regularly interviewed on Channel 7, Channel 9, nationwide TV shows um, and stations that are talking about concussion when it hits the headlines. So he is seemingly a go-to guy in traditional media when it comes to insights into concussion um, research. So in this episode, we actually talked about how we can solve the concussion crisis, what concussion is scientifically. That was quite interesting. How you can get concussion without even getting a bump to the head. That actually was a little bit scary, but freaky nonetheless. Um, Heading in soccer, we actually talked about the future of heading And we even talked about the future of the bump in sports like Australian rules football. Uh, We talked about the controversies of concussion research, um, the denialist denialist versus alarmist um, in a similar way to the fat versus sugar debate. We talked about the dangers of wearing a helmet. That was a little bit scary to know that there's doesn't seem to be a lot that can be done for someone going back into the sport um, in terms of wearing a helmet Uh, and how we can get around that and what that might look like in the future. That was really quite interesting. Um, Why women with concussion have more severe symptoms and have longer recovery times. My own personal experiences with being knocked out, and this was the first time I've really ever spoken about this outside of my immediate friendship group and family, Um, certainly the first time publicly I've ever spoken about that, but I just felt the desire and the need to talk about it as we were talking about this in the conversation with, as I was talking about this with Alan, um, why people shiver and become extremely cold after being knocked out, um, which was my experiences. And he sort of explained why that might have been the case. Um, the gold standard of return to play in the conflict between medical practitioners and scientists, how the brain responds to muscle damage and inclusive, exclusive into how the Australian brain bank procured the brain of the famous Australian rules footballer Graham Polly Farmer 
for research. My belief that I'll live to be 200, that was a little bit, we started to get a little bit crazy and woo-woo towards the end of the episode and I started going on about how I'm going to live to 200 and why I think that is going to be possible by that time. I'm now 37. Um, And why I'm donating every part of my body I can and then plan to be cremated afterwards. This was a very, very um, open, everything was on the table. There was, it was, everything was available to talk about. There was that many acronyms dropped from EEGs to ECGs to LMNOPs. There was just so many different little acronyms. I'm joking around with that last one, obviously, um, that Alan introduces into this and so many big words, but he has such a great conversational way of being able to explain it in layman's terms for people like me to be able to understand. I'm sure you will absolutely love this episode. You will get so much out of this. I had to continually pause and click that little rewind 15, 30 second button so that I could go back and go, hang on, what did he just say there? Because the nuggets of gold in this episode are constantly throughout and they are just mind blowing. So let's get into it. G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body podcast. This is your host, Jacob Andre. And today I would like to welcome special guest, Dr. Alan Pierce. Alan, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on the show. This is the first time actually, in fact, that I have had a family member on the show. So do you know how far back you need to go to remember how we're related? Oh, it's, it's actually not that far because my dad is your mum's cousin. Yep. So we're yeah. second cousins. So that's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So your grandmother and my grandfather were brother and sister. Yes, exactly. That's right. So obviously I know a lot about you and follow you on Instagram. So, but for everyone listening, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist. Um, I uh, sort of have been involved in neuroscience in one form or another, probably for about, uh, this is going to show my age, about 25 years now. Um, I'm originally from Perth. Uh, did all my studies in Perth. Uh, my undergrad was at uh, Edith Cowan, and then I did my PhD at uh, University of WA before moving across to Melbourne and expanding the horizons a bit. Um, but yeah, look, I've, I've been looking at uh, you know the brain now for quite some time, and probably for the last 12 years, I've been focusing in on brain injury. So that's kind of what led me to where I am today. So how would you describe yourself to someone if you're in an elevator for 30 seconds with them? What do you do? Yeah, so I, I, if I had a 30 seconds, it would be I look at brain injury in sport in particular and how can we solve the concussion crisis. That's a okay, so 30 seconds, but anyway. Let's dive straight in. <laughs> how, do, how do we solve the concussion crisis? Well, it depends on which answer you want to go for. You want to go for a safe answer or, or you want to go for a, a more, uh, I guess, controversial answer. But the safe answer really is to try and uh, get people to understand what concussion is and that it's a brain injury and that we can't dismiss it as just a knock to the head um, and that we need to take it more seriously. So that means that, you know, people need to uh, rest for a bit longer. And, and what I mean by rest is not play competitive sport if they were concussed in, um, in a game, but, you know, look at exercise and, and cognitive rehabilitation to help the, uh, the, the process of recovery but not get too keen to get back to sport too soon. 
Um, the more controversial answer is that we need to reduce exposure. So we, we need to have a think about this more broadly and, and look at uh, trying to reduce exposure rates because we're not here to try and stop anyone playing contact sports. But what we're here to do is try and get people to understand that the more knocks to the head you get, a little bit like smoking, the greater your risk of long-term chronic um, diseases, uh, impairments and, and uh, you know, other, other things like that. So we've got to be you know, mindful about that. And, and that might entail modifying kids' sport to be more physical and less contact. So, uh, yeah, it's, there's some pretty, pretty broad issues that we've got to try and, um, you know, uh, think about critically. There's so many things I want to ask and so many directions I want to go in. I'm go trying it, it really hard to like come back. So let's come right back. What All actually right. happens when someone gets a concussion? Okay, so concussion is basically uh, the brain's response to an impact to the brain itself. So by that, I mean, it could be direct. So someone, you know, absolutely, you know, putting an elbow to the head or, or a shoulder to the head uh, directly, or it could be indirect. So, you know, I think in the last sort of, well, once, once AFL in particular has come back, you know, people have been concerned about the bump because the bump can actually indirectly transfer uh, force to the brain. And so what you have is you have some, some shearing or some shaking movement of the, of the brain tissue, uh, which then sort of temporarily disrupts function. And so that's what you see when someone is concussed. So, you know, they're, they're confused or they're, they're, they're lost their balance and they're dizzy or they're, or they're not able to talk properly. They're slurring their speech. They might be agitated. They could get some headaches. They could even have amnesia. There's a constellation of signs and symptoms that no two people will, will equally show. So there's a whole range of things that, that could be uh, showing up as a result of, the, of that uh, temporary dysfunction in the brain. I didn't realise that. So is that actually the case that you can get concussion from getting a bump to the body, not directly mm. to the head? That's right, yeah. Because what happens is that the brain's sitting in a sac of fluid and it's called the cerebrospinal fluid. And, and the cerebrospinal fluid is there to provide nutrients and uh, you know, exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide because just like any other tissue, like a muscle or a skin or whatever, you know, the brain's got to work by using oxygen and getting rid of carbon dioxide. Um, but uh, the cerebrospinal fluid also acts as a bit of a buffer. So the, the brain is sitting in a, in, a, in a bath, so to speak. Now, if you're walking along and you accidentally bump your head, you know, some, you know the door's a little bit low or something like that, um, yeah, it hurts. But the cerebrospinal fluid protects the brain because it provides a little bit of a cushioning effect. But when you're talking about bumps is in NFL, AFL, rugby league, soccer, um, you know, where, where you might have forces of 20 Gs. So one G is one earth gravity, 20 times earth gravity coming through. Some, some hits are as high as 100 Gs, 150 Gs. Then what that does is that, that cerebrospinal fluid doesn't allow cushioning. It actually makes the brain move within the, within the bath. And then that, that can, one, push up against the skull, but it can also cause that, that movement that, that can shear and, and, and stretch brain tissue, brain cells, which is not good. Uh, so that shearing, and, that shearing and stretching, is that like a tearing of fibres in the brain? It can do, yeah. So it can lead to that. So if the, if the force is enough to, to tear the fibres, 
those nerve fibers can potentially die. And once a brain cell dies, it's not like muscle tissue that can regenerate. It, it, it doesn't really regenerate. And that's where you start to see some problems, not immediately, but, but maybe down the track. Mm, yeah. So one of the things that I've been concerned about personally with having kids in sport is soccer. And you talk about getting bumps and being in direct concussion. Mm. What, it sounds to me like the future of the bump could be in jeopardy a little bit, but what about soccer and headbutting the ball? Yeah, that's an interesting one because I've had lots of parents, you know, come to me and say, Oh, look, I'm not going to let my kid play rugby or, or Australian rules football because it's just too rough. I'm going to get them into soccer because soccer's, you know, there's no, there's no tackling. Right. And they're not me. Yeah. Well, well, that's right. But we, we do have an issue with heading of the ball. Um, and in a game, they might only head the ball once or twice, you know. But what we're concerned about is is in practices where, where they might be doing repetitive practices several times a week of heading the ball effectively. Um, and, you know, there has been some concerns for a while now because in 2011 uh, in Britain, they had the first case of what they called industrial disease. Uh, well, actually, it was, it was deemed industrial disease in 2002, but it was 2011 that they actually... Uh, re reanalyzed um, a guy called Jeff Astle, who is kind of one of the greatest um, soccer players of all time. Uh, he was in the World Cup winning team in, in 1966 for England and, you know, sort of really put up, put up there as one of the greatest. And he was found to have uh, this disease, what we call chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. Um, and that was probably due to the, the heading of the ball. Now, October of last year, they, uh, they, the same group that, that discovered CTE in, in this uh, soccer player's brain put out a study on 7,500 ex-professional football players, soccer players, and showed that the incidence of dementia, Parkinson's disease and motor neuron disease was three to five times higher than the average population of the same age. So, you know, it, what's come of it is now that... Uh, uh, UK uh, Professional Footballers Association, so that's you know UK's uh, peak body, I guess, for, for professional players, has now said that they want to ban heading for kids twelve years and under to reduce that exposure. And so, is that likely to go through? It already has. So oh, there's been yeah. So in the I think in, in Britain anyway, uh, they ban heading in practices uh, until the age of twelve, and I think they've also banned heading from kids soccer until the age of 12 as well and then they start to learn because if you, if you can reduce uh exposure risk and it doesn't mean getting concussions it just means getting your head impacted um up to the age of 12 you, you probably can reduce your exposure risk by about 10 years which is quite significant so you, you know the analogy is that you know smoking is not good but if we can stop kids from smoking for example then if it if a young adult picks up smoking at 20 years of age rather than at 12 years of age or 15 years of age, you know, their risk of, of lung cancers, for example, or other related cancers is reduced significantly. So, you know, we've got to um, think about that. Very interesting. Is it likely that Australia will follow suit with that? I hope so. At the moment, they're keeping very tight-lipped. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. When that news broke last October, it made world headlines, except in Australia. Yeah, October 2019, that is, isn't it? Yeah. Just yeah. in case this is um, people yeah, listening right, to this after. in the future. <laughs> um, so 
it's this is quite popular in American gridiron. Um, and there's been a lot of famous cases of athletes who have unfortunately and sadly committed suicide or had other mental health issues and illnesses mm. um, as a result of this. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's obviously the, the controvert- one of the controversial aspects of this research in this area more generally as well. You know, who, who gets it? Uh, how are they, you know, people are, people are suffering from dementia. Others are suffering from Parkinson's disease. Uh, some have mental health problems. But then there are others who don't. And, and this is where it's starting to, to become quite... Um, you know, a bit, a, quite a quite a controversial argument, and and parts of it are quite uh, aggressive as well because um, it's all based on the lived experience, right? So, um, people who've played football, rugby, American football, soccer, whatever, hockey, um, and and live you know apparently healthy lives after retiring, say, well, there's nothing wrong with me. What's why are these others having issues? You know, are they are they just sat unhappy because they've retired and they can't play their sport anymore? And, and you know, that, that's been a, a bit of a trying to turn the argument a little bit, saying, oh, there's nothing really wrong with them neurologically. It's all psychological and, and they're having psychological issues. But uh, then but then we're getting you know, more and more evidence of, of neurological problems um, that seems to be countering that argument. So, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's quite, there's, there's almost two camps in this area right now and, and, both accuse each other of being either a denialist or an alarmist. So think uh, climate change debate, um, think fat versus sugar, think uh, lead poisoning in, in you know, lead in, and, and uh, asbestos, think uh, concussion. It's all in the same. And, and you know, there, there, are, there are almost two camps right now that are, that are sort of taking, taking sides. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's yeah, it can be a bit fatiguing at times. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, is it known how head injuries and head trauma can result in mental health um, disease or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot. What the you know, a lot of epidemiological studies. So, you know, population-based studies are showing uh, clear links between head injuries. So, this is not just in sport, but this is head injuries um, generally. Um, and I guess the correlation to mental health issues uh, down the track. So, you know, there's been some big studies showing that if kids and adolescents uh, have, a, have a head injury, you know, and, and we're talking anything from a concussion through to car accidents or whatever, um, you know, in, in their 40s and 50s, you know, they start presenting with depression, anxiety, um, uh, some impairments, um, cognitive impairments, memory issues, that sort of stuff. So uh, it, it, um, it's, there's, there's certainly a, a link there. And, and the World Health Organization recognised the, the um, you know, traumatic brain injury as, as one of the, the most, uh, I guess, most, one of the most serious, um, I guess, diseases, if, for what they call it, uh, for death and disability worldwide. So, you know, head trauma is, is, is actually it's really a, a pandemic. Mm. So it, it seems then if there's so, so many cases in American gridiron where they wear helmets, mm. do, do helmets even make a difference? 
Short answer is no. <laughs> and I get asked that quite a lot. Um, and it's, it's a fair question to ask, so I'm not, not uh, disparaging it, but it, it is a, a, a question that does get put up a lot because uh, if you are wearing a helmet, then the, uh, you know, the, 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 the theory is, is that that should be stopping um, the impacts. Now, helmets are fantastic in protecting the brain skull from fracturing. So, you know, wearing a helmet when you cycle, for example, is really important because if you come off your bike, uh, you know, it, it will protect your skull from fracturing. But like I said earlier in the session, you know, with the, with the brain in the sort of spinal fluid, the impact will still cause the brain to move. And so that movement with that stretching and shearing will, will you know, be the, the reason for your concussion, even though you're wearing a helmet. So we don't see helmets as protecting uh, the brain from being concussed. Um, and there's been, you know, multiple studies to show that uh, for the last sort of 20, 30 years. So wear a helmet when you're cycling or on a motorbike um, or, you know, playing in, in uh, you know, skiing, for example, or, or, or uh, even, even ice hockey because of, of protecting the skull. But don't think that wearing a helmet is going to protect your brain from concussion. And so the flip side of that too is that people who do wear a helmet can, can take more risks when they play. Um, because I think they're protected, but also the, and I call that the superhero complex. So they, they feel like, you know, I can run through walls now because I'm wearing a helmet, but also opponents think, well, you know, he or she has got a helmet on. I can go in a bit harder now. I'm not going to be. And, and that was also clearly shown in a, in a study uh, late last year in 2019 as well, where uh, they played American football with and without helmets. And they showed that the impacts, um, to the head when they wore a helmet was 10 G's higher than when they weren't. So, you know, it, it, there is this subconscious, I guess, protecting the head when it, when it's, uh, I guess, not encased in a helmet. So I think back to, so obviously with the gridiron, they're wearing the big hard helmet with the yeah. face mask and in ice hockey, they've got the, also the, um, the big hard helmet. Um, yeah. And we've been doing it in, as a PE teacher, we do it uh, ice hockey at the moment. Oh, yeah. with my class and so we're wearing the face mask shield part as well um but in the afl in australian rules football for example i think mm -hmm. back to ben griffiths who played for richmond and had concussion issues paddy mccartan who played for st kilda had concussion issues they came back from those um concussions and wore a padded helmet yeah. that just had a velcro underneath the chin um yes. so is that just because of where we were at with concussion understanding at the time in probably mid Two, about 2005 yeah. 2010 ish or yes yeah yeah so um yeah i mean uh obviously because afl rules you can't wear a hard helmet um you know the the, the soft shell helmets are the way that, that a lot of them are sort of wearing that in in so maybe you know two reasons one is is this false assumption that it'll protect from concussions because a lot of ex-players have told them that they should wear a wear a helmet um but they may also be wearing a helmet because uh, they might have to, you know, potentially protect the skull bone. So put that part aside, the, the fact that they're wearing a helmet to protect against concussion is, is sort of showing no effect at all. And, and in particular with Paddy, you know, he, he was wearing, for his last couple of concussions, um, particularly his last one, um, which he's still, you know, obviously out of the game, um, he was wearing a helmet that was claiming to be able to reduce impacts by 50% in laboratory trials. 
but you can see that even if it has been protecting the, the impact by up to 50%, it doesn't take much to get concussed. And particularly with someone who has a history of concussions, um, when you have a history or have had repeated concussions, every subsequent concussion needs less force to, to bring on the symptoms. And you actually show that the symptoms and recovery takes longer each time. Um, mm. And we're not really sure why, but we're, we're thinking that obviously the threshold is now being lowered because the, the, the brain cells or the neurons are, are getting probably more vulnerable to, to injury. So, um, you know, that's, that's the, the key concern with someone like a Patty who has a history of, of concussions, um, but it certainly shows that helmets are not as effective as what we would hope them to be. So it's kind of like from a strength and conditioning point of view where the greatest predictor of injury is past history of injury. Yeah, and so right. it's similar with the brain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you'd, you'd know from, from your SNC about hamstrings and, and you know, uh, soft tissue muscle injuries that, that are obviously a precursor for, you know, uh, subsequent injury. And, and that's something you've got to think about when you're an SSC coach about the, the athlete's uh, prior injury history and how to, how to try and keep them, keep them healthy. And talking about ex-athletes, you've worked with a few former elite athletes um, and, and not even elite, but even just like the general weekend warrior athlete. Yeah. You've worked with lots of people. Um, so what's that been like with seeing people who probably didn't, we didn't know a lot of this stuff in the 70s and 80s and mm. now like there's nothing they can't you can't go back in time and try and fix things yeah um, yeah it's um yeah look a lot of them you know it's uh, it's been really really a humbling experience because obviously you, you grow up watching these champions you know do their thing as a kid and, and as a young adult and you you know you, you you see them in awe and then you know they're coming into your lab to be tested because they're scared and, and they're concerned about what their their future may or may not be. Um, and, and also, well, what can we do about it? Because obviously when they were playing, there wasn't any awareness about this other than boxing. So, you know, up until 2005, um, the, I guess the only acknowledgement of, of repeated head injuries was in boxes and, uh, you know, and we've known since 1928, probably even 1927, actually, um, that if you get repeated blows to the head, uh, it, it can cause problems. And that, you know, that's where the term punch trunk comes from. Um, and it still took boxing about 60 years, you know, until the 1980s when Muhammad Ali really showed symptoms that they went, mm, yeah, okay, I think I think we we need to address this. And they, they've you know they've done some fantastic stuff since then. Um, but but football, it wasn't until two thousand, sorry, two thousand and five. So, you know, you've got all these football players who've been repeatedly concussed, or even just in a match, you know, just getting pounded. And you know, as you can, as you know, in the um, just watching some old footage of, of how much rougher the sport was, and and how much behind the play type of uh, shenanigans were going on as well. I mean, the sport's cleared itself up a hell of a lot since then. But you know, they, these guys would get concussed um, and if they came off, you know, they, they were berated by the coach saying you're weak, you know, get back out there. Um, you're letting your teammates down, all this sort of stuff. So there was this cultural aspect to it as well as there was as much as the, the, the physical or the, you know, the, the medical aspect of it. 
as well. So, you know, it's to see these guys now saying, well, you know, if I only knew back then what I know now, you know, I would have said, I, I can't go back on. I need, I need to have a break. Um, and I would have never have berated my teammate for saying, well, um, you know, get back out there, you weak dog, you know, that sort of stuff. So, um, but I would, you know, they very quickly to say, well, I would still play the game. You know, I, I would never give up the game. I love the game too much, but I would have just been a little, been a lot more cautious um, about this injury the same way as I would have, I was cautious if I got a knee injury or a, or a, or an ankle injury. You know, I need, I, we never put these injury, the concussion injury at the same level as what we, of seriousness of what we thought, you know, of, of other injuries, shoulder or, you know, um, hips or knees or ankles or anything like that. So, yeah, you know, that certainly there's no, they would play if they had their time again, but they would certainly be a lot more, um, you know, cautious about it. And is it known why sometimes there's an immediate effect and why sometimes there's what I think is known as delayed concussion? Yeah, well, again, there's a couple of things that we, we're still trying to work through on that. Um, uh, the, the, the thing about concussion is that it's what we call a, I guess we call it, you know, in, in, in science, it's a metabolic cascade. And, there's, and the reason we call that is that there was a famous paper that was written in, in actually, actually in 2001, four years before the, the whole thing really blew up. And it was called the metabolic cascade of concussion. And if you look at the time course from seconds through to days, you know, you see a whole bunch of different molecules and chemicals in the brain being released. Um, you see physiological processes um, sort of working um, all at different rates. And, and it may be a reason why some people show symptoms very quickly, um, but others don't. It can also be to the type of um, impact that was uh, impacted on the brain. So was, was it, for example, uh, linear or was it causing rotation? And what we know is that any, any impacts that come in from the side or does anything to, to slightly you know, rotate the brain tissue which can cause more shearing and strain, that's where, you know, you, you get your uh, greater effects. And, you know, so when I, when I do my seminars, I, you know, I say, look, if you ever want to win a boxing match, make sure you, you, you go for your hook because that'll, that'll spin the brain a little bit. And that's how they get their knockouts is, is to actually cause, cause a bit of rotation. So that can be a factor as well. Um, and then the last, well, a bunch of, you know, a whole bunch of things, but I guess the other, the other point um, that, that is really important is, is the, again, the cultural aspect of reporting the concussed. So many players and, and concussions underreported by a factor of six to 10. So for the number of concussions that you see um, in the statistics multiplied by other, you know, from a factor of six up to a factor of 10 for the real instance, because people don't report that they're concussed. If they can hide their symptoms, they'll hide them to keep mm. playing or to keep working or whatever. So they'll. So sometimes what you find is that when someone has a delayed concussion, I'm a little bit sceptical of that because they're probably already concussed, but they're hiding their symptoms until it, they can't hide them anymore. And that's when people then diagnose them with a concussion several hours later or maybe the next day. Um, mm. Yeah, so that that's one of those those things that we've still got to try and, and um, 
you know, try and work out. I mean, and, and relating to that, you know, we, we know that males and females have different, um, seems to have different um, effects to concussion. And whilst we hardly have any female research studies in comparison to the, to the males, and I really want to, you know, we really need to get more w women's concussion studies done um, because we're certainly not biasing to the men. It's just that you, you try and call for recruits and, you know, the, the, you can get more males to come into studies than females, but that's definitely changing, which is great. But from the limited studies we know at the moment, we, you know, women who get concussed have more severe symptoms or more, or more number of symptoms than what males report. And females have longer recovery times than males. Now we're still trying, we're still getting a little bit of, you know, emerging evidence of, of why that might be from a physiological basis. Um, but also I still think that there's a fair amount of, of cultural um, concerns where, you know, males will say, oh, I'm right, I'm okay, I'm right, there's, I'm fine, I'm ready to go back on, whereas women are, are much more honest about it. And that's what we're trying to get through to the guys is, is to become more honest with your uh, recovery and, and rather to try and, you know, be too much of a, you know, try and be a man and then get back on, get back in playing as quickly as possible. And that's detrimental. Mm. I actually have one of those stories, which I haven't shared. And I'm feeling like, as you're talking about this, I kind of need to um, step up and be a bit vulnerable because I actually experienced a, a knockout um, when I was about 19. I was in the city with two mates and we were surrounded by six guys and uh, they wanted to fight one of my friends. And um, I happened to have my back turned to one of them and he swung with what you're talking about this from behind and it came around over my shoulder and hit me in the side of the chin right. and spun yes. my head on it, the yes. neck on its axis. So mm. I did a bit of research into it and discovered that that was the best way to knock someone out. Um, from still to this day, that was now for probably 15 years ago. I still can't remember that, that period. I can remember when they walked up to us and I don't remember anything until we were mm -hmm. driving home. And, um, yep. and I, so I'm presuming the other two, friends of mine didn't see it um but they just said they saw me getting up and then walking away and um so somehow i'd hit the ground very lucky i didn't hit my head on the concrete mm, mm. and um and then i remember i don't know how long later it was it might have been half an hour um just from the stories i was told we were driving home we we're about halfway home and i was shivering i was freezing yeah. cold and i live in darwin so it wasn't yeah, the aircon was on yeah. in the car but it wasn't cold yeah and um yeah i was just freezing cold and i went home and um, I was living at home with my parents at the time and my mum actually kicks herself now and says, I should have taken you to the hospital. But yeah. um, I remember saying that I was fine because I felt at the time I felt fine and yeah. I didn't have any psychological issues from that apart from the cultural yeah. stuff where I didn't want to talk about it because yeah, um, yeah. it was a bit embarrassing to say you got knocked out, even though it was a coward punch. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, but for the next week I couldn't open my jaw. I, could, I had to literally eat out of a straw um, yeah, because I yeah. couldn't open my jaw up. Um, right. So hopefully that story inspires other people to talk about it. And so that the research can be done on, yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. on this sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, we, 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 you know, hear a lot about what they call post-traumatic amnesia, which is what, what you had um, suffered. Um, but also, yeah, the fact that you, you were shivering, you know, suggests that maybe there was some, um, what, what we do know a little bit from the biomechanical studies is that the, the, the brain, the outside of the brain, which is the, the, the cortex, neocortex um, and the, and the um, cerebrum, 
for technical terms, sits over the brainstem. And then in the deep part of the brain is the hypothalamus, which is the, the temperature regulation part of the brain. And so what they think is that, you know, the brain is spinning on this stem, on the brainstem, as well as, as stretching and shearing with the, with the, uh, the, the cortical tissue. And then maybe that was having some effect in the uh, temperature regulation part of the brain. Um, that then caused the, the the shivering response that you get when you you know people like have a fever and that so you certainly weren't viral, but there would have had to be some physical trauma to that part of the brain for you to be feeling like you're shivering when um, and also probably a bit of shock as well. So yeah, mm. oh very interesting. So generally when. Um, a player playing sport now it's a general rule of thumb that they have like a week off is it always just like a week to be safe or is it dependent on their symptoms and what do those symptoms kind of look like <laughs> well that's How a really know- good question yeah well i mean everything and this is this is another part of the controversy is that at the moment um the um gold standard um way of of one diagnosing an athlete of or whoever with, with a concussion uh, but two, in particularly with athletes at, at any level, is the um, resolution of symptoms. So at present, there's no, um, in, in football codes, there is no parameter for return to play um, apart from the resolution of symptoms. Now, just, just in comparison to that, boxing, if you are knocked out, um, and I think it's the same in MMA as well, you can't train or compete for a minimum of 60 to 90 days, depending on which state in Australia. So you are you are automatically um, sort of phased out for that period of time. Whereas in the football codes, um, if your symptoms are gone, you can return to play. And so the concern that, and the tension, I guess, the, the, the tension at the moment in, in this area is that medical doctors will say, well, if there's no symptoms, they are, you know they're healthy but scientists like myself um, have seen that despite the resolution of symptoms the brain hasn't fully recovered to their baseline levels and and you know an example of that is i published a paper in 2015 um, which you know was in an amateur football team the hampton rovers that play in the victorian amateur football association and they were kind enough to you know donate their brains for a season and what we were seeing is that when a player was concussed um, they would be able to you know that, that they're from the time of concussion to when they return to play the following week after so one of the aspects of the research was that if they were concussed the following week they were out and if all the players agreed to that even though some of them said that you know agreed it through gritted teeth but they all agreed to it so it gave me an opportunity to to do 10 days worth of, of data collection and what we found was that the clinical symptoms and the um, cognitive testing tend to resolve within five days, <clears throat> which technically would have allowed them to play on the Saturday again. Um, but what I found with my brain physiological testing is that, uh, and if anyone wants to jump on my Instagram, they can see all the pictures of me zapping people's brains, um, was that by 10 days, it hadn't come back to baseline. And so the brain's processing physiologically, you know, physiological processing and, and excitability and, and, you know, the way the brain works in terms of, of its physiology hadn't resolved by 10 days. And so this kind of sort of fed into understanding why people who get concussed 
are more likely to get concussed or even more likely to get a musculoskeletal injury. So someone who's concussed has a, a two to three fold risk of injury for an ankle or a knee or whatever following a concussion because what we think is that the brain's not processing optimally. So, you know, um, this is this is the issue at the moment is do we take experimental scientific evidence or do we or do we believe the doctor who says, well, Jacob, you're you look you present to me fine. You're 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 you know answering my questions and, and you don't look like you're you're showing any symptoms. So here you go. Here's your medical certificate to go back and play. And that's where we're at at the moment in 2020. So you talk about the research and finding that out and being able to see what you're doing on Instagram, which by the way is Alan PhD. Alan PhD on Instagram. Um, And we'll come back around at the end of the show and we'll talk about that, how people can connect with you. But um, I would imagine it would be quite difficult to be able to do research on the brain. So you're trying to, you've got different things. I'm sure I'm interested to know how do you do research on the brain where you look inside the brain (laughs) and what are the difficulties with that? Because obviously you've got, you want to do research on people who are living. And then I'm sure you want to do research on people who are no longer living and researching those, those brains. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is that I do not open anyone's head. Okay. So (laughs) I I just want to put it out there. I, even though I'm, I'm researching the brain uh, in situ, I'm not opening, I'm not doing any Frankenstein stuff. Um, like that at all but i do use a technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation um, and we just call it tms for short and uh, what it does is that you know we can we can stimulate brain tissue and then using um what we call electromyography where we can pick up responses in the muscle for example i just put some electrodes stick them over the muscle i can look at that response or we can use the tms with um what we call electroencephalography or EEG, where we put some electrodes over the head, we can stimulate the head, sorry, stimulate the brain and get those responses as well. So it's all non-invasive, completely non-invasive. And, you know, when people do come into the lab, they're, they're almost uh, a bit of an anticlimax when I show them exactly, you know, what, what, what we do. And they're like, oh, oh, is that it? Oh, I was, I was, geez, I was getting a bit worried what was going to happen. But um, what it does is that it allows me to look at how brain cells or neurons behave so if you stimulate a brain cell or a neuron it will it will fire a certain way and what i do is i basically look at the way the brain cells are firing in healthy people and i compare them to uh, the guys and girls who've been concussed and see if there are any differences between how their brain cells are behaving when i stimulate them versus the, how they how the healthy people's brain cells are, are stimulated and and basically just compare it a, between groups or sometimes like in the Hampton Hampton Rovers research, I can get them in baseline when they've been sort of rested for a number of months and then I can compare them to themselves after they've been concussed. So we call it a, like a bit of a neural signature or a neural correlate, um, which allows us to uh, to compare and see how, that, how those brain cells are firing. And, and so, you know, for the last, well, over 10 years now, that's the, my, well, uh, Sorry, I'll go back. I've been using the technique for 25 years since the start of my, actually my honours year in 1994 was was when I first learned about this device. Um, and I've been using it ever since across a whole range of things. But for the last you know, 10 to 12 years, I've been using it to look at uh, concussion in particular because 
if you get scanned for concussion in an MRI or, or a, you know, like a, yeah, an MRI, um, <clears throat> it doesn't show up. There's no, there's no telltale signs of someone being concussed. The only time that you see problems is when someone has had a moderate or a severe brain injury or they've had a brain bleed or something more serious than, you know, a concussion injury. So whilst concussion is still very serious, it doesn't show up in imaging. So what I do is I, I look at how the, the brain cells are behaving and then that way we can see what, what's, what, what's going on and, and maybe explain why people are struggling with their memory or they're, they're slowed in their reaction times or they're, they're feeling sad or, or anxious or, or, you know, and, that, and that's been, you know, what I've been sort of publishing in the last sort of 10 years. Is it correct in my memory that you started off in studying physiology and then moved into concussion because of what you're finding? Was, yeah. was it, yeah, was it your honours or PhD where you were doing badminton? It was something to do with holding a badminton racket? Yeah, were... yeah. So it was, it was looking at um, repetitive practice. So uh, my honours actually was looking at how the brain responded to muscle damage. So if you, if you get the delayed onset muscle soreness, you know, the eccentric contractions and you get that soreness the next day, you know, how, do, how does the brain cope with that? And then in, in my PhD, I wanted to look at, at how the brain sort of reorganized itself for the learning of, of motor skills. Because one of the things I was thinking about was, was moving into some form of uh, rehabilitation. How, how can we help the brain? And, and just to put this into context, in the mid-1990s, the word neuroplasticity didn't even exist. So we couldn't even use that word, for example, for, for this study I did on racket sport athletes, which were the badminton players, Olympic, uh, Olympic badminton players that came back from Atlanta in 1996. You know, we couldn't even use the word neuroplasticity changes. We had to use the word reorganisation when we showed that, that if you do an extensive amount of practice in one limb, the corresponding contralateral side of the brain which controls that seems to shift to accommodate that that amount of practice um, and so that was what my early days of, of doing this research was to try and understand how the brain reorganized and 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 sort of readapted to skills you know learning of skills in healthy people but also to try and look at how um how the brain reorganized itself if there was um you know, an insult to the brain, like a stroke. And so one of my, you know, my, my, the postdoctoral fellow who was um, in the same lab as me when I was doing my PhD, she was looking at how people regained movement from stroke. And, uh, you know, in those early days, there was no such thing as neurorehabilitation. You know, if someone had a stroke and the, and the surgeons were able to, you know, sort of stabilise the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the bleeding to the brain, they'd send them off home and go, look, thanks very much. Uh, we've, we've fixed, we've, we've stopped it, you know, but you're on your own. And so, you know, that what really got me into brain injury was through this stroke research that, that um, Michelle Burns at, uh, who's now at UWA <clears throat> uh, was, and, and she's got two PhDs for, you know, she's this amazing, you know, amazing, amazing woman who has a PhD in neurophysiology and a PhD in neuropsychology. And she still works with stroke people today. But, you know, what she was seeing was that people who were, were trying to self-rehabilitate were showing all sorts of what we now call neuroplastic changes in the brain compared to a group who just self-selected and said, 
the doctor told me I can't improve. I, I just want to go home and I just want to watch TV. And I, if I die, I die. I don't care. You know, and so there was this mindset too of, of wanting to, to rehabilitate themselves and saying to us, oh, I'm trying to do some gardening. Is that okay? Is that going to help us? And we're like, mm-hmm, see what happens, you know. And but what happened was that we were seeing other parts of the brain taking over. It was fantastic um, compared to this group that just sort of gave up. And so I think that's a really important um, take-home point on, you know, neuroplasticity is that you've got to be motivated and, and want to learn something new in order for that plasticity changes to occur. And, and so that was, that was trying to understand why that was the case. And that was all my early, early stuff in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands before I started to move into uh, to brain injury. I remember you talking about that to me many years ago, and you were saying that you had a, you were putting magnets on people's head and you're able to switch off parts of the brain and be able to stop them from doing a task with their hands, like controlling a yeah. pen. Are we allowed to talk yeah. about that? Yeah, so using the same technique, we can we can inhibit um, movements. You know, so this does sound a little bit Frankensteinish, but <laughs> obviously, if you if you're sending a pulse into the brain, um, you know, electrically or, or electromagnetically, you know, we use we use um, the technique is is basically sending electrical pulses through copper wires, which creates a an ele- electromagnetic pulse, and you know, it's certainly not radiation it's certainly not anything that we should be concerned about in terms of of the you know electromagnetic field or whatever like that it's just it's just an electrical pulse but if you send it through a copper wire and and create a a very brief magnetic field you, you don't stimulate any pain receptors so it's it's completely painless compared to an electrical pulse which can actually be quite you know can quite you know sore on, on the head because you, you've got a lot of pain receptors around your scalp. Um, and so doing electrical stimulation is not all that, that pleasant, but doing magnetic, you don't feel anything. But if, you, if you're sending through pulses, you can actually inhibit someone from, from actually making a movement. So in the 1990s as well, you know, when, when this technique was new, there, were, there was a lot of curiosity about it. And, and you know, we, we were trying to look at, well, how, can we actually inhibit someone from moving and you can do that <laughs> can we can we induce a, a titanic what we call a titanic contraction where you we, where you actually get someone and you know they've got spasms in the hand and you know and then we we tried and, and other colleagues tried well what happens if you give someone you know um particular medications you know what does that do stuff that you think oh geez i don't know if we would be allowed to do that now but we, we did all sorts of stuff and it was it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. What, so what's ethics like with all this stuff? Is it quite different? Uh, look, they're not, they're not, depends on the university. So unis that, that don't have this sort of technology in their, in their research campuses or whatever, their, their ethics committees can just go, oh, what are you doing? Oh, my God, you can't do that. And then you get others where, you know, the, the techniques been used and, and published a lot used, using that technique. They just go, oh, you're just going to do that. Oh, that's nothing. Don't worry about it. There you go. Go for it. You know, so, um, yeah, it, it really depends. But, you know, we, we're obviously very much putting in our ethics to make sure that no one is coerced into any research, in, into doing any research. Uh, no one, it can, you can, we can withdraw at any point and, you know, your data won't be collected. Um we make sure that, you know, there is absolutely very low risk in, in what we do. 
Um, so we pre-screen people if, and, and I guess, you know, the first time I started doing concussion research, there was a little bit of hesitation because they thought, well, you know, are you going to induce a seizure into someone? Cause they've already had a brain injury. Um, so I had to be really, really careful, but you know, 10 to 12 years down the track, when you put your applications in, you know, you say, look, I've published 50 papers. I've tested 500 to thousand people. Um, you know, there's been no, no contraindications and they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You're okay. So you're fine. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not too bad. Yeah. We're, we're not doing ECT or anything like that. Yeah. So what's um the, what's it like? I recently redid my will and um, on that, mm. I've done it previously. And on that, I put down that I would be happy to donate my organs for therapeutic. Oh, yeah. um, well done. Good on you. Uh, yes. Something, something so therapeutic so i'm presuming like if someone maybe had some kind of injury and they needed something therapeutic um yes. there was also like um medical and then there was um for science and mm. uh i was actually shocked that when i did my will maybe in my early 20s that i had put that down um and then to cremate the rest of my body and sprinkle out yeah. in the ocean but um what's what's it like what's a do many people do that? Do many people donate their brains to science? Not really. No, it's, I think it's because it's it, people, it's a little bit of a macabre um, discussion to have with, with obviously relatives to say, look, you know, I'd like to put, send my brain, you know, to um, a brain bank for, for research um, because I think, and you, you know, I'd like to hear your thoughts as, as someone who's considered it is, um, you know, the brain is obviously that, that central part of, of who you are. You know, it's your, it's, it's your personality. It's your, the way that, you know, you, that controls everything about your, you from a, from a movement perspective, emotional perspective, from a thinking cognitive perspective, and for that to be taken out of your head and donated to, you know, obviously somewhere, when, when obviously it comes to the funeral, then people, some people might know that you, not all of, of you is there, you know, and, and uh, I guess that's, that's always, you know, that's why it's such a confronting conversation to have probably even more so than, you know, donating organs for, for um, helping other people because, you know, a liver or a kidney, a kidney, you know, can, people can sort of get away with that but the brain is so completely different. And um, I guess, you know, just as a bit of an aside, you know, when um, you know, I, can, I, can, I can talk about it now, so this is a bit of an exclusive for you, um, <laughs> is that when Polly Farmer passed away and, uh, you know, we, we knew that he'd been suffering from dementia for probably about 25 years, nearly, yeah, probably yeah, 25 years. And, and talking to my colleague, Michael Buckland, who's the director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank, you know, he and I, and he, he's a rugby person. So when I said, oh, look, you know, here's, we've got someone, someone potentially called Polly Farmer. He goes, Polly who? You know, I'm like, oh, come on, man. You know, he's <laughs> one of the greatest football players ever. And they've got a, they've got a freaking, you know, freeway named after him at <laughs> Perth, you know, come on. And they're going to have a state funeral, you know, this, and he's like, wow, oh shit. Okay. So, um, we kind of made approaches to the family to say, look, you know, uh, he's, he's passed, you know, we, we know that he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but the characteristics of what happened in his progression 
didn't didn't seem to really fit what we would think Alzheimer's is. You know, it was not going the same pattern. And so Michael's a genius at talking to family. He does it all the time as a pathologist in the coroner's department at, at New, in Sydney. So we were able to procure Polly's brain. And uh, when we saw the, obviously, the, 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 the state funeral service and pictures of the, and videos, and, you know, there was Gil McLaughlin looking at Polly's coffin and, and we're just like, no one knows that his brain's not there, you know? And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of one of these things where, yeah, it's, it's, but a lot of football players now are thinking, well, you know, this is something I want to do. And if I don't have brain disease, well, that's fine, but that will still help us understand why some do and some don't. So, yeah. And I guess the other thing too is that, uh, and we're trying to change this because in the last couple of decades as well, you know, autopsies, I mean, this is, you know, really out there conversation to be having for a podcast, but autopsies have a hierarchy of what, what is um, looked at and what isn't. And the brain is actually at the lowest level of the hierarchy so that unless there's a very specific request for the family to do testing on the brain, the brain is not even looked at. And if someone has passed away, they'll just try and find that cause of death from pretty much the neck down. Mm, interesting. So you asked my take on it, why I would donate. Um, my, it all, for me, it all comes back to one simple statement that I heard. And it was profound and it's impacted my life since. And it was, are you a human being having a spiritual experience or a spiritual being having a human experience? And I'll let people pause this if they would like and really dive into that because it's, mm. I've thought on that for years. Um, but what it is for me is that I think that there's a soul, uh, you know, we can potentially get into some religion here and stuff like that. Um, I'm not religious, but I do believe that we are an energy. There's an energy, there's a soul. So we're getting really woo-woo now. Um, you're concerned about talking about um, autopsies on a podcast now we're talking yeah. about <laughs> now we're what metaphysical yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so I think that there's some kind of energy and um, when yeah so so my take on it is that I I'm just I'm here I'm in this body I'm using this body but there's a spiritual being inside me which is going to go on that's my belief right. um, I don't necessarily believe in God but I believe that there's energy we're all energy because the energy can't be created nor destroyed as Isaac Newton says. Oh yeah. And, yeah. um, and so I believe that this energy that's in us will go on somewhere else in the universe and the universe is massive. There's some cool videos out there that I've been watching yeah. on just how big it is. Yeah. About 15 billion light years worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 14.2 billion years old and it's still in its yeah. infancy. And yeah. so, um, so my take on it is that I don't really need the body. I'm not, I'm using this. I feel like I'm renting this body. I'm hiring this body and yeah, it's my responsibility to I've always been told treat your body as a temple and it's my responsibility to look after it because it's my home for now, like a hermit crab. Um, but eventually mm. I'll move on. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I don't need it. And if it's going to help someone else live a better life in some way, whether that's through scientific research or actually being inserted into somebody, I would love. Okay, here we go. So mm. my, my take is I'm going to live to 200. I'm absolutely convinced that I'm going to live to 200. This is getting really woo-woo now <laughs> because it's said that the first person to live to 150 is, is alive today. And people, and we look at the lifespan, expected lifespan, 
and I've uh, been looking at some stuff out of China, um, mm. research done there on life expectancy. And it's around 90, uh, 80 to 90, no, 83 or something for a man mm. Um, mm. in Australia. And I, and it's not uncommon for people to live past 100. Mm. And people say to that, well, I want to have good life, you know, life um, satisfaction. I want to still have a good life. I fully plan to be doing yoga and all sorts of stuff when I'm 150, 170. And I truly believe that science will catch up in the next 50 to then 100 years, 150 years for where I'm now at 37 to Mm. allow that to at least live to 150 um, by the time I get to that point. Mm. Anyway, Mm. so I have this fascination with um, with being able to go on and live forever. I really love listening to David Sinclair stuff. Have you heard of him? No, no, I haven't. No. So he's an Australian guy who's into okay. um, longevity. I highly recommend you look him up oh, yeah. and look at his, yeah. some of his videos on YouTube. Yeah. And so he talks about what you can do to live longer and live with good life satisfaction. And so taking some of that stuff on board, I feel like that I can quite easily do that. And if I can, um, go on and live on in someone else, then that may be one way that I'm able to sort of live on for longer. Um, yep. But anyway, so I kind of feel like I wouldn't, when I first wrote my will and I said that I would just be cremated, I didn't have kids and I'd never lost anyone really close to me. Yep. Um, in the last three or four years, I've lost um, all four of my grandparents. And um, so that's kind of, ch- and I've had kids uh, in the last mm. nine years. And so now, it's changed my perspective and I think I would like to be buried in order to be able to have um, a, a funeral. But personally, I don't want to be buried when all I'm going to be is essentially a skeleton with a skin around it Mm. Mm -hmm. because I'm happy to, I'm donating everything, heart, lungs, brain, whatever they can take. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So for me, I've kept it that I'll, be a um i'll be cremated and then instead of being sprinkled in the ocean i'll be kept in an urn hopefully i'm one of my <laughs> mental pieces <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's the thing isn't it like i mean yeah, as you said you know science generally has to catch up because the the nature of science takes time um but generally it can also confirm what what we anecdotally observe but again you know the whole point of science is that you observe you then hypothesize, you then collect the data, and then it either confirms or rejects your hypothesis, and then you repeat the process again. So, you know, the fact that, yeah, there could probably be someone, you know, born today that's going to live to 150, if not longer, you know, we need to understand how that, you know, why that's the case and, and what is it, you know, and, and, you know, a whole bunch of things that we can talk about. But certainly for, you know, bringing it back to the whole understanding of why people are getting brain disease with impacts and, and to the brain is, well, we can't do that without, without the, the evidence. So, you know, irrespective of what people's um, impact, brain impact history past has been, you know, we need, we need brains uh, to be able to, to look at and, and compare and understand and look at it objectively. So, you know, it's fantastic that you're, you're, you're making that decision. Oh, trust me, it's crazy to live inside this head of mine and I'm sure you'll have fun <laughs> investigating it, cutting it open and researching it. Um, but yeah. so you're very heavily involved with the Brain Bank and yeah. um, I'm like, do you want to talk a little bit about that and what you do yeah. with that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the Australian Sports Brain Bank opened in uh, March of 2018. So had been doing a, a number of, um, had been actually calling for brain, a brain bank in Australia for nearly 
since about 2012, 2013. But, you know, the inertia towards that um, was just incredible. And, and we could probably talk for another half an hour about the politics of that, but we won't go there. Um, but thankfully, uh, a guy called Michael Buckland, he's a clinical associate professor at uh, the Royal Prince Alfred, um, sort of, you know, stumbled. His story was that he stumbled on, on CTE because um, he never really even considered it as a, as a neuropathologist. He'd just been doing his other stuff for all these years. And one day he kind of just read about it and went, oh, oh I've got access to, you know, all these brains and maybe I should start it, you know. And so one thing led to another. And, and so the Australian Sports Brain Bank was, was born. And from there, you know, we've been collaborating um, in trying to get more research or funded research to help us develop uh, the brain bank because at the moment we're, we're running on a smell of an oily rag um, and so we're, we're you know we've we've only had a handful of brains that we've been able to test despite a bunch of uh, footballers and rugby players pledging um, their brains to research so um, you know because this this could take another 40, 50 years before we start to get, you know, for example, your brain would probably take another 150 years. So, <laughs> you know, what do we do in the meantime? So we, we've got to do other research to look at um, some of the cognitive or the behavioural aspects of the people who are in the living. So my, my research complements Michael's, you know, pathology research because what we want to do is we want to try and build a picture of a footballer who's had a number of concussions and may or may not be having issues with the eventual... Um, pathology that that Michael um, does um, after they've passed on. So, you know, we, we do need to have uh, pledges for uh, brain tissue so people can can pledge and donate their brain. And um, if you go to uh, brainbank.org.au, that is where you can pledge your uh, brain and come onto our database. And, and what we do is we keep you... Uh, up, uh, updated on our activities and what we're doing and how we're trying to raise funds. But also you can go to this website and, you know, if you don't want to pledge your brain, that's fine. Um, you know, you can, you can donate, um, you know, $50, $100 just to help us with, with doing the research. So helping me fund, you know, getting funding to do the, to the research, to, to do the publish, you know, publishing of the papers and helping inform doctors of what, what needs to be done if you get confused. And, um, you know, the Sports Brain Bank is also part of uh, the Concussion Legacy Foundation and what we call the Global Brain Bank. So we have brain banks in uh, Canada, USA, Brazil, um, New Zealand just opened up and obviously in Sydney as well. And hopefully in sometime later this year or early next year, there'll be a, a British uh, brain bank in London as well. So we're, we're a net worldwide network of, of trying to, uh, you know, understand CTE in particular. Um, so that, that's essentially, you know, uh, while I do my own research, I'm also part of the, uh, the brain bank, Australian sports brain bank. Mm, and that website one more time, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So brainbank.org.au. And of course, you can call 1-800-551-898. Um, but we'll link all that up in the show notes after yeah. this, uh, after we finish recording and uh, make sure that's there for people to access. Um, and I know you, you do so much traveling and you've been to a lot of those countries to either talk or be a participant in conferences. Mm. 
Yeah. So, Alan, I just want to acknowledge and thank you for your time today. Acknowledge oh, you right. for the work that you do. Thank um, you very much. I think the impact you're going to leave on the world through your research is one way that I think you can live on, um, you know, yeah. after, after passing. And yeah. what the work you've done and the number of articles you've had published, which is, I think is about 50, is that correct? No, about close to 150 now. 150. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Just the knowledge that you will leave for humankind um, for many, many years and centuries to come is, is, is <laughs> phenomenal. <laughs> so I acknowledge <laughs> you for that. I thank you for that. Thank you for your time today. Um, oh, no. What's the best way for people to contact you and have a look at some of the stuff that you're doing? Because it is super interesting to yeah, be watching sure. what you're doing. Um, well, obviously, social media would be the easiest. Um, and I use the same handle for both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and that's at Alan Pierce PhD. So that's probably the easiest. Um, I also have my own web page, which is neuropierce.com. And you can have a look at some stuff there, even though it needs a little bit of updating. Um, but uh, yeah, you can have a look there. And then um, you can see people are more than welcome to email me um, if they have any questions or they're looking for some information. Um, and they can email me at my uh, university address, which is alan, A-L-A-N, dot Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, at Latrobe, L-A-T-R-O-B-E, dot E-D-U, dot A-U. And of course, that'll all be linked up in the show notes as mm. well. So, Alan, as you know, we finish every episode with a quick 10 in 10. It's 10 right. questions in 10 seconds. Uh, we, we, don't hold it, we don't hold you too strictly. <laughs> if you want to go off on a tangent, that's fine. Oh, no, I'll like, try and keep it real. Yep. On the best of that. Before right. we do that, for yeah. anyone that's watching this on YouTube, they might be able to see what's behind you. And those that are listening on the podcast, um, there's this little duck that's been moving over your shoulder, your left shoulder this whole time. Can you, what is that? So it's, it's just a, a little kitsch uh, drinking bird from, it was big in the 1970s. So I reckon if you talk to your mum, she'd probably know what we, what, what, what it is. Uh, and it's, it's just a very simple um, it's just based on, on, you know, um, buoyancy and it's you, the, the head there is actually like a, a toweling type of, um, material that absorbs water. And then that changes the, the, um, uh, center of gravity because of, um, capillary action from this red, uh, fluid that comes up and then that tilts the head down. So it, over, it tilts over and it looks like it makes the, the bird having a drink and then the fluid comes back down to the, to the bottom there. So you'll see it almost about to have a drink, bang, fluid comes back up and away we go again. So yeah, I, I found it sitting there somewhere in the house and I went, oh, I've got to bring that back out. If I have to be working in an isolated lockdown environment here in Melbourne, I'm going to need to have something to, uh, <laughs> to, to keep me entertained. The fundamentals of science is pretty cool. And of course, on your right shoulder, I can see an old textbook, which I've got anatomy and physiology there by Saladin. That's a first year undergraduate degree textbook. Oh, on that second shelf there, that white one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, yeah, going back to my days of undergrad, you know, doing anatomy and physiology as a, as a, yeah, in the early 1990s. Um, probably the, the other one which is a bit of a Bible for, uh, for neuroscientists is, is Candell, Eric Candell's uh, Principles of Neural Science. He's also brought, he brought out a book a few years ago after he got his um, Nobel Prize called Thinking Fast and Slow. 
Um, I don't know if I've got it there. No, it's not up there. It's in my other other library. Um, yeah, which is a really good book on trying to understand, you know, in some situations, how, how is the brain able to process so quickly uh, in order to think very quickly, you know, and you think about, say, you know, um, uh, you know, a football player trying to evade an opponent and then kick the ball through, um, you know, sort of uh, very quickly. But then other times, you know, we need to think really slow and, and be really patient and think through things. So why is that? And, and he sort of addresses a lot of the those big, big questions that I would never even attempt to try and get to. So that's why he's got a Nobel Prize. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have to get those two yeah. textbooks. I'll yeah. definitely chuck them in um, all three of those books we yeah. just talked about in the show notes as well um, for anyone that wants to have a look at. All right. So this was a little bit of a segue right. for this first question in 10 and 10. So because on your left <laughs> shoulder, there's also what I'm about to start with. Question one, olive oil gin. <laughs> That was, uh, I just got that in the last week. So I'm a gin drinker and Four Pillars, which is uh, here in the Arrow Valley, does awesome gins. And so uh, they had a limited run and I just said, yep, I've got to try that out. And it's lovely. Lemon and <laughs> rosemary in it. Awesome. Oh, yum. What do you drink it with? Is it just like... Just a little bit of tonic, lemon and rosemary for that olive gin. Uh, but they've got a stack of others. Yeah. Awesome. Try that one. Number two, neuroscience. First thing that comes to mind. Uh, neuroplasticity. I mean, that's for me driver of why I'm doing neuroscience. How does the brain change itself? Number three, the future of the bump and the header. Ask commentators because I won't go there. <laughs> not, for <laughs> me to, not, for, not for me to change the game. Um, it's for me to try and understand what's happened to the brain with the bump. Number four, the future of brain research. Money. We need money. So, and it, I don't want to sound horrible about that, but we desperately need research funding to help us keep going to do this because I've got too many questions that we can't answer. You're predicting what my next question is. Number five, the importance of the brain uh, bank. Uh, oh, well, obviously we need to answer these questions on, on uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Number six, the biggest misconceptions of your research. Uh, that I'm... I'm a medical doctor, so I'm actually a scientist. And so people come to me thinking that I'm going to be able to treat them with drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Number seven, the best development in brain research so far. Uh, that sounds a bit repetitive, but it's neuroplasticity. I mean, that was a complete game changer in the uh, uh, late 90s. Number eight, the best country that you've been to, you can't answer Australia because we live here, but the best country you've been <laughs> no. to th with your research? Portugal. Portugal, why yes. is that? Uh, well, I went to a conference. It was the European College of Sports Science Conference. And I actually didn't end up going to the conference because the country was just so good. I, I gave my 15-minute presentation and I raced out and then just started going all over the place, you know, from Lisbon to Bilbao and all that sort of stuff because it was just... Oh, it's just freaking awesome. <laughs> you know why I'd enter Portugal? Because that's where port's from. Uh -huh. and, and I love it. And that, you yeah. can't even call it port in Australia anymore. It's called fortified wine. That's right. A bit like champagne. Mm -mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, number nine, life and death. Oh, okay. You have, yeah, that was uh, life. I mean, uh, and quality of life. So, you know, we've got to make sure that, that we just don't live, but we actually live with meaning. Yeah, 
That's awesome. And number 10 is one that I ask everyone and I'm really, really interested in asking you <laughs> this question. <laughs> if you could go forward in time or back in time, which would you go and why? Uh, I'd go forward in time because I really want to know what the planet is going to be like in 500 or even a thousand years. Are we even going to be on earth? Are we going to be in Mar you know, on, on, on a colony in Mars and, uh, I'm hoping that we haven't destroyed the planet in a thousand years time, but, you know, just, just to see what technologies there are available, you know, to get on, you know, Oh, I have to go to Mars to work today and <laughs> sort of stuff like that. Even mundane, the mundane of, of future life, you know, is like, Oh, it's going to take you know, it's a two hour round trip to get to Mars and back for work. You know, and you think, Oh, <laughs> yeah, I love your thinking. You're such a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Al, my cousin, thank you very much for being on the Mind Your Body podcast. Loved it. Thank you very much for having me um, and hope to come back in at some point in the future when we get some more research coming through and more developments. So, yeah, I'd love to come back on. Oh, that's a promise you'll definitely be on. You just send me a message as soon as you've got something you want to talk about and you'll be back on because this is the Mind Your Body podcast. I can't think of anyone more perfect to be a guest on this podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Are you frustrated that no matter how much you try, no matter how good you plan to eat, no matter how much you intend to exercise, you just can't seem to stay on track with your health and fitness goals? Do you feel like your best of intentions to have more energy and feel better about yourself results in having even less energy and feeling down? What if there was something you were missing? What if eating healthy was actually enjoyable? What if you looked forward to exercise? What if moving more could actually be really easy? I've put together a free ebook just for you, detailing the strategies for having more energy and feeling better about yourself. And I want to give it to you absolutely free. To get instant access absolutely free, simply visit jacobandre.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-A-N-D-R-E-A-E.com.